I'm actually thankful, as much as it's been a difficult thing to do, that I've had to study this book like this, because I realize how systematic this is. This is not an accident. This is not random. This is deliberate. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we are going to be looking at fundamental belief number 19 on the law of God. And I have special frustration for this chapter because there's so much here that we can talk about and we just don't have enough time to do it. That's true. I loved your description last week of Ellen White being that alligator that takes you under the water. And I feel like this chapter is the shackle that she clamps to your legs to keep you under that water. And everything that comes after it is just more of the same. Mm -hmm. So since we have so much to cover... I'm just going to jump right in. But before we get started, let me remind you that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails containing new online articles and other ministry news. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So Colleen, my question for you, Mm -hmm. when you were an Adventist, what did you think the purpose of the law was, and what did God write on the hearts of believers? It's interesting how many layered that is in my head when I think about it. I think the short answer is, I believe that the law was the transcript of God's character, and it was the revelation from God to tell me how I had to live. Mm -hmm. It was the essential outline of godly living. It got a little confusing for me as I entered my my 30s, to be honest, when I started reading more in the New Testament, not exactly sure why, but I did, and I came across the idea that the law was written on the heart of believers in the New Covenant, and that no longer would man teach his neighbor saying, live this way, know the Lord, because they would all know the Lord. And I realize now that that quote in Hebrews is as actually from the Old Testament, and there's reference to Israel in there too, but The fact is, I started thinking about that and thinking about Christians that I knew who were not Adventists. Mm -hmm. And I'd think, okay, they seem really like godly people, but they're not keeping the Sabbath. It does seem like nine of those ten are written on their hearts, but if all ten are written on their hearts, why aren't they keeping the Sabbath? Because it also says they shouldn't have to be taught Mm -hmm. how to keep the law. That was a confusion I lived with for quite a while, maybe ten years before I actually understood the gospel. It was a confusion to me, but At the core, as an Adventist, I really did believe the Sabbath was the most important thing Mm -hmm. because it was the thing everybody had forgotten. Believing that the Sabbath was the most important thing about the law compounded my confusion about why these Sunday Christians didn't keep the Sabbath and it didn't seem to be written on their hearts. Yeah. So, what about you, Nikki? The same in every point. I would add that when I thought about the law and the purpose of the law, I had that origin story in my head. The law comes from eternity past, and God has been accused by Satan of being unfair because he gave us a law we couldn't keep, and we're supposed to prove that we can. And so, part of the purpose of the law, other than revealing God, was to vindicate God. Oh, yeah. You know, at least that was our relationship to the law. That was our purpose. And I had the same question about the law being written on the hearts. It really came into focus for me when I started attending a women's conference, a Christian conference, and listening to these women speak and share their testimonies of going through really difficult things and how their relationship with the Lord carried them through that and how scripture did. (laughs) Things that had I gone through them would have devastated me. Right. And I would think they don't keep the Sabbath, but they seem to know the Lord personally, like a real person in Mm -hmm. their life. And I thought they really did hit the latter rain and I missed it. I know I keep going back to that, but how is it that they have God in their lives, that they have this incredible relationship and trust and confidence in the Lord, but they don't keep the Sabbath? If I could formulate the question now with what I know, Mm -hmm. it would be, what is written on their heart? Exactly. Because something is. Oh, that sounds so familiar. 
as we start this chapter, I just want to say, like you said in in your opening, Nikki, I feel like last week we met the alligator or mm-hmm. the crocodile or the giant reptile that pulled us under the water. Mm-hmm. And this chapter, the law of God, it's as if Adventism has taken off the velvet gloves. Yeah. And we now see very clearly how they believe, how they use Scripture, and they're not even trying to really sound evangelical. They're sounding Adventist. Mm -hmm. And the way they get from their assumptions to their declarations is much more clear. Once we have bought into all those origin stories, all those beginnings, all those soft-pedaled explanations of Scripture that they gave us in the first 17 fundamental beliefs and then introduced us to Ellen, from there on, if you've bought into Ellen, there's no pretending. Mm-hmm. It's no longer the Adventist trying to win an unbeliever. They now have a believer. They now have bought into the source of their worldview. So, all that's left now is to explain the worldview clearly, and that's what this one is doing. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, it's good because this chapter really shows us the heresy behind the Adventist belief about the law. But as you said, there's so much, we just might as well get right into it. Yeah. Could you read the statement of belief, please? And isn't it interesting how long it is? Yeah. Yeah. So, fundamental belief 19, the law of God. The great principles of God's law are embodied in the Ten Commandments and exemplified in the life of Christ. They express God's love, will, and purposes concerning human conduct and relationships and are binding upon all people in every age. These precepts are the basis of God's covenant with His people and the standard in God's judgment. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, they point out sin and awaken a sense of need for a Savior. Salvation is all of grace and not of works, and its fruit is obedience to the commandments. This obedience develops Christians' character and results in a sense of well-being. It is evidence of our love for the Lord and our concern for our fellow human beings. The obedience of faith demonstrates the power of Christ to transform lives and therefore strengthens Christian witness. And I could say, what jumps out at you? This is one of the most blatant statements of belief, in my opinion. Can I say again, so much. Yeah. (laughs) They really like to define law as -hmm. the Decalogue over and over and over again. Same with commandments. Uh Uh-huh. Anytime you talk of God's commandments, they are the ten. And I think that's important to camp on a little bit because they don't explain how they arrive at that. Mm -mm. But just as I was taught as a child, every time they use a text from Scripture that talks about the law, thy law, God's law, or the word commandments, they mean the ten. Mm -hmm. And they don't tell you how come they mean the ten. It's just assumed. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the worldview. Also, the way that they... They seem to put it over Christ that the principles of God, the principles of His law, are embodied in the Ten Commandments, and Jesus gave an example of what that looks like in His life. Yes. So, again, the focus is the law, Mm -hmm. and Christ just kind of showed us how to look at it. The purpose of Jesus' coming really was to show us the law, because the law shows us God. And the fact that they say that God's law is binding upon all people in every age is really frustrating when you understand that they're talking about the Decalogue and primarily Sabbath keeping. That's where they're taking this. What is the next fundamental belief? The Sabbath. Yes, of course. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, we have a whole one on the law and another whole one on the Sabbath. What else? Well, the fact that they say that the Decalogue is the standard in God's judgment. No, the man, Christ Jesus, the perfection of God is the standard in His judgment. He is holy. And in John 5, Jesus says that God has appointed Him, the Father has appointed Him to be judge of all the earth. He is the Son of Man. He is God the Son, and God has appointed Him to be judge. And He's not judging us based on the Ten Commandments. In fact, Romans 2 articulates that those who live under the law will be judged by the law. Those who live without the law will be judged without the law. God does not judge us on the basis of the commandments. He judges us on the basis of our trust and faith and belief in Him, with or without the law. What else? Anything else in here? Yeah. They say that it's through the agency of the Holy Spirit that the Ten Commandments point out sin and awaken a sense of need for a Savior. Now, I know that there are 
Christians who use the Ten Commandments in their efforts to evangelize. Right. But the Holy Spirit doesn't have to. No. I mean, and we read that in Romans, that there are Gentiles who've never had the law and they do what is right. Right. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's John 16, 8 to 11. This obedience to the commandments develops Christian character and results in a sense of well-being. Nikki, did you ever feel like trying to keep the commandments and succeeding once in a while at being better at it than others developed a sense of well-being and Christian character in you? Not at all. And that was part of the confusion when I'd get around those Christian women. They had a sense of well-being. They had a sense of knowing they were saved and being cared for by God, no matter what they faced. I didn't have that. If I was going through something hard, I automatically thought I messed up and God's punishing me. Me too. I had no sense of well-being, no sense of rest. As the Sabbath school lesson for last week was talking about, keeping the law is a place of rest. No, no, the law is only a condemning list that threatens death for disobedience. That's not rest. Well, and they also say that obedience to the commandments is the fruit of salvation. And isn't that just so interesting? Because that is what I believed. I believed that the Ten Commandments were the standard and the goal for everybody and everybody who professed Christ. And in fact, I believe that's what Jesus was up in heaven judging in the investigative judgment, was how well I was keeping the law and if I was confessing my failures or not. Mm-hmm. There is just no sense in this statement about the true place of the law and what the gospel really is or what Jesus really did, what, he, what his relationship to the law was. They establish a false relationship between Jesus and the law. And there was tension there, I think, for most people, which is why I would think people came up with the idea that, oh, you can be saved and not keep the Sabbath if no one's told you. But once you know, then you're responsible for it. So it either is the fruit of salvation or it isn't. Right. Nikki, you prepared a chapter outline. Would you walk through that just real quickly and we can start to see how they define law? Sure. So, they have a handful of sections here in the chapter. They start with discussing the nature of the law as Adventists understand it. Then they go on and talk about the purpose of the law, then the perpetuity of the law. Then they describe the law and the gospel, the relationship to the law and the gospel before Sinai, at Sinai, after Sinai. And then they talk about the obedience to the law. This Mm -hmm. This is their process. And under the nature of the law... They talk about it being a reflection of the character of the lawgiver, and then they break it up into all these different attributes, and they actually say that the law of God contains the attributes of God. Right. This is really where I think you can start to see them deify the law. They take passages of scripture that talk about the law of God, and they impose the Ten Commandments on the text. Yes. So, they take passages from Psalm 19, and they talk about how the law is perfect, and they say this is the Decalogue. And we started talking together before we started recording about all of the different attributes and things that they give the law Mm -hmm. that actually only belong to God. Right. And we compiled a list from that. Yes. I think that was helpful to me because that was how I understood law as an Adventist. And just by the way, the way they use those passages referring to law, I struggled with Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. And as Adventists, we were taught that everywhere David says, oh, how I love thy law. Any way David referred to the law or the precepts of God we understood as Adventists to mean the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's all it ever meant. I will never forget um, being in Michigan at an FAF conference several years ago, and I was talking about Adventism and the law to a group of members of the chapel where Phil Bubar was the senior pastor and he was hosting an FAF weekend. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about Adventists and their relationship to law, to the law. And he came to me during a break and he said, I just want to clarify, when you say the law, do you mean the Ten Commandments? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, you need to clarify that to your audience here because my members in my church understand the law to mean the whole counsel of God, the whole Word of God. So, when the Bible refers to the law of God, they don't just think the Ten Commandments. And that was like a shocking realization to me 
that not everybody thought of the law as the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. The law of God is everything He has said. And Adventists never explain how they come up with the Ten Commandments wherever it says law. It's an assumption they make. It comes from Ellen, and it's the worldview, and we never questioned it. Well, and Uriah Smith wrote a book saying that anytime you read commandments or law, it's the Decalogue. Well, there you go. They did teach it very clearly early on. Now they just assume it. Right. And it's all over this chapter. Some of the texts they use to prove their points, they're pulling up texts that aren't referring to the Mosaic Covenant. They're not referring to that law. So in scripture, we hear, we read about God's law. We read the law of Moses. We read right. the law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life. And, and commandments. Co- yes, and commandments. And context is everything. Absolutely. One of my favorite examples of that, Elizabeth Enrig has often given it with the word trunk. She said, if I ask you to bring in the trunk, you've got to figure out if I mean bring in the elephant's trunk, bring in the trunk of the car, or bring in my, my trunk that I've packed my traveling clothes in. Not to mention tree trunk. Yes, exactly. So context informs the reader of what the author is saying, and Adventism completely ignores context. In fact, a hallmark of Adventism is that their beliefs are predicated on proof texts, which are sometimes single phrases taken out of a larger verse, divorced from the chapter. So Mm -hmm. all we ever hear is the phrase Mm -hmm. that says the words they want you to remember. Like, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Right. Mm-hmm. Hebrews Hebrews 4, 9. <laughs> and that's not what that text says in context at, at all. all. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are some of the things that they say the law does in this chapter? Well, we already talked about the fact that they say that the law reveals God's yes. character. Yes. But they also say that the law suppresses evil, that it restrains sin. Yes. Well, we know as believers, it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, look at Romans 1. In fact, um, Galatians, Romans 7, Romans 5, they all declare that the law increased sin. Mm-hmm. The law was given to reveal and increase sin until faith would come, until Jesus came. It does not suppress sin. In fact, I remember our pastor giving a sermon when he preached through Romans and said the law was given to make people conscious of what they weren't supposed to do because it was sort of unconscious. It was not even completely defined, but it was given to increase sin. He said, I remember getting into an elevator once where it (laughs) said, do not jump in the elevator. And he said, I would never have thought to jump in an elevator. But when the door closed and I saw that sign, I jumped. (laughs) It made me think of jumping. The law, the rule made me think of doing it. He said, that was what the law was given to do, Mm -hmm. to drive people to despair so they knew they needed to be saved. Yeah, the Bible calls it the ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, it is not given to restrain or suppress sin or to stop it, is given to reveal it and to make it known that we are sinners. Anything else? Well, they say that the law gives liberty. When you live in, under the law, you live freely. And they're replacing here the, the Lord. Absolutely. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not let anyone take you again into a bondage or a yoke of slavery. This is not only ridiculous, it's specifically counter to Scripture. The law was a yoke, even Israel called it a yoke. It was not liberty. They say that the law converts the soul because they take a passage that's talking about the counsel of God, the full counsel of God, and they make it about the Ten Commandments again. And so they say the Ten Commandments converts the soul. So why did we need Jesus? I have no idea from an Adventist perspective, and I would have been hard-pressed to explain that to you as an Adventist, except to say, He showed us how to obey God. He showed us how to keep the law, and then He died because He was able to keep the law perfectly, and He died, and somehow God is going to excuse us from that second death if we too can keep the law because, you know, Jesus died the representative death. I didn't understand it as a full substitution because He took my imputed sin. In fact, I remember the shock I had several years after leaving Adventism when I realized that when Jesus took our sin and went to the cross— it was our imputed sin. It wasn't just a representation like, I'm, I'm going to go now. 
and I'm going to die this death. Somebody had to do it. You know, like the consummate, willing, submitted victim. No, he took our imputed sin, which is the, which is the antithesis of the imputed righteousness he gives us. And that I did not understand. Mm-hmm. So, if you'd ask me what Jesus came to do, it would be to show us how to keep the law, to show us that his law is fair, to show us that he'll help us keep the law. It wasn't about saving us from the sin the law revealed. Yeah. They also say that the law is immutable Mm -hmm. and eternal. They give it divine attributes. And I've heard Adventists say, the law can't change because God can't change. Right. So... Again, it's like it's one with God. Yeah. Only God is immutable and unchanging. It's almost as if the law in an Adventist framework is part of the, quotes, Godhead. And again, it's the Ten Commandments. Uh, Yes. It's the Ten Commandments. Yes. And you know, Galatians is really clear that the Ten Commandments came 430 years after Abraham until the seed would come. Right. It was a moment in history. Yes. That God gave them for. And the purpose of the law is to reveal the Messiah. It reveals yes. sin, but it also reveals the Messiah. In fact, Romans 3, 20 and 21 is really clear about that because it says, now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So, this righteousness of God that is ours in Christ has nothing to do with the law. It doesn't have anything to do with our law-keeping. It doesn't have anything to do with being defined by the law. Rather, the law is defined by Jesus. Mm-hmm. He came and revealed God. But Adventism tells us that He revealed God by being perfect, by showing us how to keep the law, by being loving and kind. Adventism misses the fact that Jesus Himself is over the law and not subject to the law. They taught us He was subject to the law. The law was over him. Yeah, he came as a servant. And again, you will read texts in scripture that talk about the law of God enduring forever. Sure. But it's context again. So when we read that, we know this is referring to God's word or the law of Christ. Right. These things are forever. Because God is forever and righteousness and morality are part of his identity. We don't learn morality and righteousness because of the law, which is what Adventism teaches us. In fact, Adventism in this chapter here teaches us that sin is transgressing the Ten Commandments, and that that's the definition of sin, that without the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't even know what sin was. Romans 6 does say sin is the transgression of the law. That's again in context, and it's not saying that there is no sin without the Ten Commandments. And I have just recently had emails from Adventists reminding me that if I say that the law has been fulfilled and is no longer applicable to Christians, then I'm saying we can't even know what sin is because sin is defined by the law. That's not at all what Scripture says, but that is what Adventism teaches and that's what this chapter teaches. And that's not the only thing the Bible says about sin. The Bible says that anything that is not of faith is sin. It says all wrongdoing is sin, and it says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. And on this side of the cross, the law isn't even necessary. The Ten Commandments, let me say it that way. The Ten Commandments aren't even necessary to convict people of sin. The Holy Spirit, John 16, 8 to 11 The Holy Spirit has now been sent, and He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, and it's all on the basis of what Jesus has done and that He has defeated the ruler of this world. That's what convicts. And God's entire book, which does include the Ten Commandments, Mm -hmm. but so much more, it's this entire Word of God that is convicting of sin and reveals Jesus. The Decalogue does not reveal Jesus. The only relationship the Decalogue had to Jesus was that he was born a Jew, born under the law, which, by the way, was more than the Decalogue. It was the entire Torah, and he fulfilled that entire law, and he was able to fulfill it because he was God. He was the one 
who kept the law perfectly. He was the one who fulfilled the death sentence of the law. He was the one who revealed himself to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the water of life, the one who is the Lamb of God. The law witnessed to Jesus, but Jesus revealed himself by fulfilling the law. And I would even say their their favorite commandment, the fourth commandment, is the one in the ten that foreshadowed Christ himself, and they reject the substance for the shadow. That's true. It is the Lord Jesus who gives us rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. He was the one with the outstretched arms that redeemed us. And this book misuses that text. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things this book tries to explain from an Adventist perspective, of course, is their concept of the law being divided the law being divided into moral, ceremonial, and civic laws. Mm -hmm. The Bible never, ever separates the law that way. And they call the Ten Commandments the moral law, the eternal law. But the Bible doesn't say that. What the Bible does say is that the Ten Commandments were the actual words of the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 34, 27, and 28. When I saw that, I was surprised. I'd never heard that it was so clearly articulated in Scripture, not just implied, but clearly articulated that the Ten Commandments were the words of the Old Covenant. They use an old tradition to say the law is divided into parts and Jesus only fulfilled the ceremonial part. Then they try to add emphasis to that by talking about what was really put in the ark. Now, as an Adventist, I learned this very explicitly in school, in Bible class, that when Moses was given the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, (laughs) those Ten Commandments went into the ark. They were special. They were eternal. They were God's true law. In fact, I've even heard Adventists say that the most inspired part of the Bible is the Ten Commandments, because that's the only thing we have that was really written by God. Everything else was written by men. What a horrible thing to say about God's Word and what it says about itself. But I digress. (laughs) So, I was taught that those Ten Commandments were put into the ark, and then God revealed to Moses all the littler laws about how to keep the Ten Commandments, and He wrote those down and put them in the side of the ark. This book makes that same claim. This is standard-issue Adventist teaching about God giving the law and what was important and what was of secondary importance. And they called those laws that Moses wrote down the law of Moses, but they called the Decalogue the law of God. In Scripture, a very different story emerges. When Moses is speaking to the Jews who are going to go into the land of Canaan after their wilderness wandering— and this is the book of Deuteronomy, he is renewing the covenant with the wilderness generation who had not been there at Sinai. In Deuteronomy 31, he's he's explaining that God gave him the tables of stone, and he said, those were the words that God spoke to Israel, the only words he spoke to Israel. But Israel was afraid and said, oh, don't talk to us anymore. You talk to us, Moses. You go listen to God. So, God called Moses up on the mountain and told him the rest of the law, how to keep the ten, how to live, how to separate from their surrounding neighbors. But nothing was written according to Moses. There's nothing recorded as being written down by Moses at the time of Exodus. So, at the end of Deuteronomy 31, it says, after Moses had spoken all this law, and the reference is to the book of Deuteronomy, where he has recounted the entire covenant which God first gave at Sinai, and Moses has reiterated it before the wilderness generation is going to go into the land. After he had spoken this whole law, he wrote the whole law down and put that in the side of the ark. He gave it to the Levites and asked them to put it in the ark. Now, this is referring to the whole book of Deuteronomy, and the point here is not that it was a secondary law to the Ten Commandments, because Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, including all those other laws. He wrote the whole covenant down. But the point was this. In the ancient Near East, when there was a covenant made between a suzerain king and a vassal king, there would be two copies of the covenant made, and each king would receive a copy. 
That's why the Ten Commandments were written on two tables of stone. It was written in that same format. According to tradition, each king put a copy of the covenant at their place of worship by their gods. The God of Israel dwelt among the people. And so, the two copies of the covenant were both placed in the tabernacle, in the ark, so that God's copy was there and Israel's copy was there. And then, 40 years later, when Moses reiterates the covenant and writes it down for the people who hadn't been at Sinai, he puts that whole rewriting, that whole reissued covenant for this new group of people into the ark with the Ten Commandments. It's not the original statement of the covenant, but it's the reiteration of the covenant for the people who hadn't been there. And that's what he put in the ark. And it was for the purpose of doing exactly what the nations did. They put a copy of the covenant from their suzerain king into their place of worship because it drove and defined their life. It wasn't that the law of Moses was a secondary, less important, less permanent thing. It was all one law. There was no division. Yeah, I heard that one all the time, that the tablets of stone were written by God's finger and placed inside the ark. And so, I remember the first time I read the book of Hebrews, and I got to Hebrews 8, and it talked about the first covenant being obsolete. And the very next chapter, the first sentence, says, now even the first covenant, the one that they had just called obsolete, Uh the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. And it goes on to describe everything contained in the first covenant. And it talks about that ark, and it talks about the tablets of stone that were in the ark, all being a part of the obsolete covenant. Wow. I remember, we've talked about this on the podcast, I believe, but I remember recently listening to a pastor in Israel talking about Zechariah 3. And in it, we read about Zechariah's vision where God is speaking to Joshua. The high priest. And he says to him, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Well, we know this is messianic. This is talking about the Messiah. And he says, for behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, again, a reference to the Messiah, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it. God will engrave on this stone, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Well, when did God engrave on the Messiah and remove the iniquity of the people in one day. At Calvary. It was at Calvary. So when God engraved his law on stone, it was a foreshadowing of nailing that law to the cross and removing the iniquity of the people. So yeah, it's pretty cool that he did it, but it's a foreshadowing of Christ. It's not to say this is more important. These 10 words are more important than anything else you're going to read in this book. In fact, I think it's so interesting that it's the metaphor of stone that Ezekiel uses when he says in his prophecy that God will remove the heart of stone from his people and replace it with a heart of flesh. (laughs) And then Paul picks that up in 2 Corinthians 3 and explains that the words written on stone were a ministry of death, but now we have the ministry of the Spirit. It's a different covenant. It's a different law. Yes, morality is the same. But no, we don't get morality from the law. We get morality from God. That's why God's people have always understood how to live for Him when they trust Him. This book says that God implanted the Ten Commandments, the principles of the Ten Commandments, into Adam and Eve when He created them. My goodness, Nikki, that reminds me of Adventists saying that when God resurrects the dead, He will make a new body and put His memories of those people into those new bodies so that they will come to life and are they really related to the one that died? But that's a different podcast. But the fact is, that's not what God did. He didn't implant data into Adam and Eve. He gave them living spirits. They were spiritually alive before they sinned. They were connected to God. They were one with God. They had His life in them. They didn't need the law. They had 
God, and they had spiritual life. This entire chapter on the law ignores what Scripture says about humans having a spirit that is born dead and must be made alive, and it talks instead about the law as information which can save us. Yeah, they said that the Ten Commandments were broad and covered every sin. But in Matthew 5, we read Jesus say, You have heard that it is said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you even hate your brother, you've committed murder. You've heard that it was said not to commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've even lusted after a woman, you've already done it. On and on he goes. He's the one who gives depth to the law. He's the one who truly reveals righteousness. Right. The law reveals to us that we're incapable. We're incapable of being righteous. So in the book, they say that that the Ten Commandments reveal God's will for humanity. And they say, as the expression of God's character and love, the Ten Commandments reveal His will and purpose for humanity. They demand perfect obedience. Then they quote James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Totally yank that out of its context and then say, obedience to the law as the rule of life is vital to our salvation. Oh my... They say this obedience is only possible through the power and indwelling Holy Spirit. And then they refer to the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler in which they quote only part of a text. Christ himself said, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, that needs some unpacking because that story was when the rich young ruler came and asked Jesus what he must do to be saved. They even give the reference to Matthew where the story is told, but they don't tell the whole story. And Jesus said, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And as an Adventist, I was taught that. That's a proof text. We have to keep the commandments to be saved. But in the context of the story, the young man says, but I've been doing that. He didn't know he was saved. He didn't know if he was saved, and he likely wasn't saved. And Jesus said, what you have to do is to sell all that you have, and follow me. And the young man went away, sorrowful, because he was very rich. What Jesus was saying to him, and I'll never forget hearing our pastor Gary Enrig preach through this years ago, was the first time I had heard this story taught in context in a biblical way, not from an Adventist perspective. And he said, in that story, Jesus was saying to this young man, the commandments can't save you. You've already been doing them, and you're not saved. They can't save you. There's more that's needed. And then in essence, he said to him, you have to give up what you love the most and follow me. Mm -hmm. And that was the kicker. He couldn't do it. He didn't want to give up what he loved the most. And you know, when I left Adventism, I realized that what I had really loved the most was my Adventist identity. I had many blessings from God that He had given me as part of His common grace. But what I valued the most, the main part of my identity, was first of all, Adventist. Then, after that came American, woman, musician, teacher, wife. I valued my Adventism. And when I saw what Jesus had really done, that He had really taken my sin and died for it and paid the price and had come to life and had given me life now, I realized I had to give up what I loved the most. And I'll never forget being very conscious of the fact that if I remained Adventist and tried to embrace Jesus on top of it, I would be betraying Him because Adventism didn't teach the Jesus of Scripture. I had to give up what I loved most, and that meant friends, social structure, work. It meant giving up all my clients. And it meant giving up your knowledge of the future. I didn't any longer think I had an edge. I knew I didn't know the future like Adventism told me I should. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how it was going to all end. It was very different from what the Bible said. I had to give up all my mental constructs of having special knowledge. It makes me think of Paul who says that, that in regards to the law, he was perfect, that he was better at all of the, the requirements of the Jews than most of the Jews he knew, but he counts it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And he, as a Jew, had a very specific idea about the future. He believed a Messiah would come and bring in a kingdom right away. That's a really good point. And you know, another thing about that passage you just read from the book, that the law is vital for our salvation, 
I had four texts that came to my mind immediately when I read that that completely contradict this idea. The first was what Paul said to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31 when he said, what shall I do to be saved? He didn't even mention the law. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's John 6.29 when the Jews said, well, what is the work of God? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. Nikki, there's never a mention of law, not even from the mouth of Jesus. And he said in John 5.24 that the one who has believed has passed out of death into life. That is at that moment. That's not in the future sometime. There's nothing about keeping the law. The law isn't for our salvation. It was to show us we needed a Savior, and it was to show us that sin, which is what we are by nature, requires death, and that Jesus took that death and broke it. They cannot accept this and keep Ellen White. The minute that they see this and accept this, the law is no longer eternal. There's no longer a war in heaven. Right. There's no need to vindicate God's character. You don't have all of those details. They talk in on page 276 where they're talking about the law before Sinai. They make a comment that holds up their great controversy worldview, that story of origins that we keep talking about in this Mm -hmm. series. They say the law existed long before God gave the Decalogue to Israel on Mount Sinai. If it did not, there could have been no sin before Sinai, for sin is the transgression of the law. There's your proof text. That Lucifer and his angels sinned gives evidence of the presence of the law even before creation. They also say that a study of the book of Genesis shows that the Ten Commandments were known well before Sinai. Genesis makes clear that people were aware that before God gave the Ten Commandments, the acts that forbade were considered wrong and sinful. This general understanding of the moral law shows that God must have provided humanity with knowledge of the Ten Commandments. And there you have it. The law is the ultimate moral authority in all the universe, not God, the law. To say that God must have given these primordial people a knowledge of the law of God, that he must have given the angels the knowledge of the law of God, meaning the Ten Commandments. The angels which are created beings before creation. And the angels who have no mother or father to honor who do not give in marriage and cannot commit adultery. Who weren't promised any land. Exactly. This law, these Ten Commandments, are not eternal. But the assumption that Adventism makes is all based on Ellen White, and it's based on her worldview. And without an eternal law, you can't have Ellen. You can't keep her. Mm -mm. Because the entire hermeneutic for understanding Scripture through an Adventist lens crumbles And I think that's why this chapter is so ungloved, if you want to say that. Mm -hmm. It's not hidden. It's clearly based on assumptions, clearly based on statements as if they're facts, straw man arguments about the Ten Commandments, which are nowhere in Scripture, but they're not explained, they're not defended, they're just given as truth, and we are asked to believe these proof texts as The straw man argument is the foundation. This is the first chapter that's done this clearly this way. Mm -hmm. Makes me think of your alligator picture. Mm -hmm. And I was actually thinking as I was reading this that Ellen, Fundamental 18, is like an octopus with all these tentacles. And in the first 17 doctrines, they touch the doctrines. They change the doctrines. But once you get to number 19 and... (laughs) She's like an alligator octopus (laughs) and she's pulled you underwater. And now Mm -hmm. the tentacles, they're not just touching, they're wrapping themselves around your ankles and squeezing and keeping you underwater. Yeah. The gloves are off. We now know that we're underwater. Yeah. And now she they are just going to do everything they can to keep you there. And if you've come to the conclusion that you have to accept her as a true prophet of God, fulfilling the gift of prophecy in scripture, then everything she has said and all the scenarios she's created have to be your worldview. Mm -hmm. I'm actually thankful as much as it's been a difficult thing to do, that I've had to study this book like this, because I realize how systematic this is. Mm -hmm. This is not an accident. This is not random. 
This is deliberate. So as they talk about the law here, the law before Sinai and at Sinai, they talk about the last days and how the law will be under attack, and they use Daniel 7 to try to prove that. And they talk about the remnant, the true saints, they're going to defend the law. So if you want to be among the remnant now, you have to be willing to obey and defend the law. Again, the Ten Commandments. And they use this section to talk about the tabernacle in heaven oh, and yes. to completely destroy Colossians and Hebrews and all of the books that actually expose the errors of Adventism very well. It was hard to read. It is hard to read. They use the text in Revelation where in vision, John sees the tabernacle in heaven with the Ark of the Covenant. And as an Adventist, I learned and Ellen White declared that the Ark of the Covenant was taken to heaven that God took it there. And she uses these texts in Revelation as her proof so that when we finally get to heaven, if we make it, we'll be able to see this ark. And it is that ark in which Jesus is ministering in his work of investigation. Mm-hmm. It's a literal, in her mind, ark that used to be in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it has those original Ten Commandments stones in it. With a halo on the fourth. Exactly. Seen by Ellen. Mm-hmm. The fact is that in those passages in Revelation where the Ark of the Covenant is referred to, it's not specifically saying this literal physical Ark is in heaven. It's a reference in context to God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. John sees the Ark of the Covenant because God is reminding him that he has made a covenant with his people Israel. He is faithful to his covenant. He is going to keep his covenant and be faithful. This is not about the law, and it's not about a literal physical ark. And Ellen developed her entire thesis that there is a literal physical tabernacle in heaven with the literal ark and the literal stones and the literal Jesus dressed in an ephod and a high priestly garment in spite of the fact that Hebrews describes him as a priest of a different order, Melchizedek. She has him dressed as a Levitical high priest, puttering around, sprinkling blood on confessed sins of people who've already claimed to believe. It's the most egregious travesty against the declaration that Jesus has completed his work of atonement. And this literal physical pattern that she said was given to Israel is supposed to reflect a literal physical tabernacle in heaven. And nothing could be further from the truth. No, and remember, this is a face-saving doctrine. This was to cover up for the fact that they predicted Christ would return, and He didn't. Because they were wrong, and they set a date which is forbidden by Jesus. So, one of their arguments for the idea that the Ten Commandments are eternal and existed before Sinai was the fact that people did do sacrifices. We read about them in Mm -hmm. the Old Testament. And they say that when God gave Moses all of the ceremonial law, Uh this is a quote now, this expansion of the simple system of sacrifices that had existed prior to Sinai foreshadowed Christ's mediatorial work, aka investigative judgment, for the redemption of sinners and the vindication of the authority and holiness of God's law. So we have Christ all over this chapter vindicating the law, magnifying the law, pointing to the law. And the reality is the law points to Christ. Christ doesn't point to the law. Never. If you're trying to get saved by the law, you have been cut off from Christ. That's Galatians. And if you've heard the gospel and accepted it and you go back to the law, you put yourself under a curse and Paul says you fall from grace. That's in Galatians 5. Near the end of this chapter, the authors say, Christ's death magnified the law, upholding its universal authority. If the Decalogue could have been changed, he would not have had to die. But because this law is absolute and immutable, a death was required to pay the penalty it imposed. This requirement Christ fully satisfied by his death on the cross, making eternal life available to all who accept his magnificent sacrifice. And I want to say, this is inside out and upside down. This description makes the law bigger than Jesus, instead of Jesus bigger than the law. The law is not the reason Jesus died. Jesus died because sin required death. 
That came from God's declaration to Adam and Eve back in Genesis. If you sin, you will die. Adam and Eve sinned. They died. We died. Death reigned from Adam until Moses when there was no law. And after Moses, the law then began to impute sin. This is not the reason Christ died. He didn't die because of the law. He died because sin required death. He's bigger than the law. He gave the law. He articulated the law so people would understand why he came when he came. He didn't come because the law said, oh, I'm eternal and you, son of man, have to come and and vindicate me. He didn't come to vindicate the law. He came to fulfill it. And I love how Pastor Gary Enrig defines fulfill. He says that he came to fill it up with meaning. Yeah. He is the substance. So as we move on next week, we'll be talking about the Sabbath, and they give a Sabbath punt right at the end of this chapter. They say in it that Christ came not only to redeem humanity, but to vindicate the authority and holiness of the law of God. They go on to say that Christians are called to magnify God's law. And of course, we know that the law is defined as the Ten Commandments, and they take a passage from Matthew, and they say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, the will in context is keeping the Decalogue. Yeah. So they say, lawbreakers will be refused entry into the kingdom of heaven. That's on page 282. Then they use their classic proof texts. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There will be time later to go over the Greek behind that passage and what Mm -hmm. Jesus is actually saying. But they're setting up the readers for the fact that if you love God, you'll keep the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you'll keep the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are vital for your salvation. That's what it all boils down to. So as I look over this chapter as a whole, I see this. It's very clear. It's not just in my interpretation of how I see Adventism. This chapter is very clear that the law is the most important, most official, most authoritative thing in the universe. They have placed Jesus as less than the law, as needing to observe the law, as needing to uphold the law and vindicate the law. They have made the Lord Jesus less than the law He spoke into existence. Jesus is the ultimate value. Jesus is God, the Son, who took human flesh. He never gave up one attribute of His Godness. He is still omnipresent in spite of the fact that He has taken on a human body. There is nothing of God that is not in Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus did not come to uphold the law. Jesus came to save us from our spiritual death. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He took the death that the law defined, and it wasn't just a representative death. It was a substitute. He became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He took our imputed sin so that He can give us His imputed righteousness, and that is righteousness apart from the law. That's His own personal alien to us righteousness. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't seen that He took the curse of the law for you, that He took your sin to the cross, and that He offers you His resurrection life, I urge you to do that now. Tell Him that you accept what He did for you, that you know you're a sinner and you need saving, that you know you need His life, and live. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails, view past articles, and receive new online articles every week to your inbox. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we look at fundamental belief number 20 on the Sabbath. See you then.